Superman 2. The adventure continues with the three villains from Krypton. Each one with the same powers as Superman. Each one dedicated to violence against mankind. Think of it. Three supervillains. Or four if we count him twice. On this special episode of Movie Geeks United, we welcome returning guest, Ray Morton. Ray is the author of Hard Day's Night, music on in the a part of the Music on Film series that's available in paperback and Kindle as well. And then you have you were the author of Close Counters of the Third Kind, the making of Steven Spielberg's classic film, published by Applause Books, and that also is uh, I could not recommend these books more. And of course, Thank the, you. Amadeus, the music on film series as well. You're, so uh, some great books that Ray has written for any of our listeners out there. If you uh, haven't read any of his work, I highly urge you to do so. And uh, on this special episode, we're going to take a look at Superman 2, because I know some of you out there are probably listening and saying, well, that didn't open until June of 1981. I remember I was there. Well... <laughs> Technically, it opened in December of 1980 in some places in the world, which we will get into later. He's going to tell yep. us all about mm-hmm. that. So technically, this is the 40th anniversary of Superman 2, and as such, we are going to uh, take a look at uh, the events that led up uh, to the creation of Superman 2 and the production of it and its critical reception and everything in between. And Probably most of you know this already, that it was a a decision made in 1977 that they were going to film both Superman and its sequel simultaneously with principal photography beginning in March of 77, ending in October of 78. And then some tensions arose between the original director, Richard Donner, and, well, that's a whole other story. So we're we're just going to start with the the intentions to film both films together, and then we'll let you take it and and go from there. Okay. Well, yeah, no, um, the the Saul Kynes who produced Superman had also produced The Three Musketeers several years earlier. And that movie was famous because it was originally intended – as a three and a half hour roadshow film. And then the economics kind of changed in pre-production to where roadshows weren't viable. So the Salkinds decided to just cut the movie into two parts and release it as the three Musketeers and the four Musketeers. Of course, this ticked off the cast and most of the crew because they thought they had signed for one movie and suddenly there was the second movie and they had not been paid to be in two movies. So there were a lot of lawsuits, and it led to the creation of something known as the Salkheim Law, an actor's contract, which means that they have to specify exactly how many movies they're making in any contract with an actor. Um, to avoid all that, and the Three and Four Musketeers were big hits, so this time when they decided to do Superman, they decided to do that on purpose from the beginning. So they intentionally decided to do two films. The idea originally was to release one and then a year later release the second one, which is roughly how the Musketeers were released. And so when they originally commissioned the story from Mario Puzo for the, for the original project, the idea was give us enough narrative and, and something in the middle to, to kind of a cliffhanger in the middle um, so that we can end up doing two movies. And then the idea was they would shoot both movies at the same time um, and then and then do kind of what they did with Musketeers, release one and then a year later release the second one. That was the original plan. Um, uh, the movies went into production with that plan in mind. And initially they shot, like they originally began shooting with Marlon Brando. And so they shot all of his material for Superman 1 and 2. Then when they they started uh, production on the rest of the film, they shot everything with Gene Hackman because he was the big star. But about halfway through the production of the film, the Salkinds were constantly running out of money because the, the films turned out to be more expensive than anyone anticipated just because of the scale of the thing and the most specifically the special effects. So about halfway through, they just found they, they were running out of money. They had to keep getting loans and buy-ins from Warner Brothers. 
and and it just got untenable. So about halfway through, they decided that they would suspend production on Superman 2, finish Superman 1 with the great quote being, because if Superman 1's bombed, nobody's going to care if they do a Superman 2. Yeah, and and then they would release Superman 1 and then go back and finish whatever was left they filmed everything with the expensive people. So they filmed, they finished out everything with Gene Hackman for one and two. And then they finished some, um, like they had the, the biggest, the most expensive set was the Daily Planet set um, because it had many extras and it was a giant piece. So they shot everything for one and two in there. Um, and they shot most of the stuff in the Fortress of Solitude because that involved Gene Hackman. So really, the part that was left mostly was the love story material and the big final battle over Metropolis. So those that, those are the two major things that were not finished. So that was put on hold. Superman 1 was finished. It was released. It was a big hit. Uh, so clearly, Superman 2 was going to be a thing people wanted. Um, and then that's when the craziness began. <laughs> <laughs> A couple things happened, um, as you alluded to earlier, and as I think we had talked about previously. Um, the Salkinds and Richard Donner did not get along during the making of Superman 1. And the primary contention there was that um, the Salkinds really wanted to keep the budget down. They had promised Donner um, a certain amount of money for research and development to, to really – nail the flying effects and then they kind of reneged on it so he was kind of making it up as he went along and of course as you know that's always much more expensive um they were constantly cutting corners and as donner famously said he goes basically he and tom mankiewicz and the production managers produced the movie and he said we had to sort of counter produce everything the Falkines were doing because they were really more uh, impresario producers. They were good at getting the project going and promoting it, but they really didn't have the nuts and bolts experience, especially on something this big and this experimental, which it was. Anyway, so there's a lot of fighting between them, and Donner just, by the end of it, they weren't even speaking to one another. Um, so that was one thing. So basically, when it came time to do Superman 2 to finish it, the Salk and the Salkinds blamed Donner because they said he shot everything, you know, many, many times and from too many angles, and they just wanted him to do it down and dirty. And that's just not how Donner works, and it wasn't what the project required. So when the time came for Superman 2, they, they, the Salkinds just wanted the movie done. They didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. Donner had said um, that what he was going to do is um, film the final sequence but he also felt that they would probably go back and reshoot some of the things they had already filmed because they had learned a lot more about how to do it. And also, if you look at some of the early material, like Christopher Reeve's performance is a little tentative in some of it. Um, they hadn't quite gotten the script where they wanted it for Superman 2. So the feeling is they would finish the scenes that were left undone, but Donner also wanted to reshoot a bunch of stuff. And then they really wanted to improve on the visual effects uh, because when you're going to have three villains fighting Superman all in the air over Metropolis, the effects in Superman were so groundbreaking that Donner clearly wanted it to go to the next level. And basically the Salkinds did not want to pay for that. Um, So that was one reason they decided to get rid of Richard Donner as the director. Um, The other big decision they made was famously Marlon Brando made $3 million for three weeks' work for shooting the original Superman, um, though it was really more like five weeks' work, but still the biggest salary ever paid to an actor. But more importantly, he had 11% of the gross of both pictures. That was his deal. And when it came time to do Superman 2, they, they used Brando in the first film to raise the money because at the time he was the biggest star in the world. Um, It was right after The Godfather and right after Last Tango in Paris. There really wasn't anybody bigger. And as soon as they signed him, they raised all the money they needed for the initial phase of production. 
So they really needed Brando. The second time around, the first film had been such a big hit that they realized that, that the project was basically going to be a hit no matter what they did. So they figured they didn't need Brando anymore. So they decided to cut him out of the movie. And they also knew that if they had presented that plan to Richard Donner, he never would have went along with it. So that was another reason they, they decided to fire Richard Donner. So they fired Donner. They brought in Richard Lester, who had directed the Three and Four Musketeers and had actually worked on the first Superman as an uncredited producer because he was the go-between between between the Salkinds and Richard Donner when they weren't speaking. And and Lester's a brilliant filmmaker. He directed A Hard Day's Night, among many, many other great films. But he had a reputation for being very fast. He wasn't – Donner's work on Superman is meticulous, and he would do it over and over and over again until he got things right. That wasn't Lester's approach. He, he, the famous quote on Lester is he said, I'm all for getting away with it. Meaning if he could, yeah, if he could shoot something real fast and get it over with, that was fine with him. That's exactly the kind of attitude the Saul kinds wanted for Superman 2 just to get it finished. Um, so they fired Donner. They actually went to Guy Hamill, who was the James Bond director, um, he he was the original director of Superman the movie back when they first got the project started, um, and he left because they were originally going to film in Rome, and then Brando there was a arrest warrant out for Brando because of uh, the uh, Italian government considered last tango pornography. Um, so Brando was like, I'm not shooting in Rome, so the production moved over to England, and Guy Hamilton was a tax exile. So he was, you know, he couldn't go with the film back to England. But they brought him in very briefly as the replacement director. They originally were not going to go to Lester. But for whatever reason, Hamilton fell out again. Then they brought in Lester. And production resumed in the spring of 1979, about six months after Superman came out. Uh, The movie was originally supposed to be released at Christmas of 79. So everything got knocked back at that point. Oh, wow! And and there was a, a a lawsuit in in the midst of all this too, right? That Brando sued the Salkinds for fifty million. Yeah, well, <laughs> the Salkinds had a reputation um, for cheating people was basically their reputation. They like the reason Richard Lester agreed to work on Superman as an uncredited producer is they had never paid him the percentages they owed him for the three and four musketeers. And he had, he had had them in several courts, but the Salkinds were kind of genius in this way. They told Lester that um, he was entitled to the profits. Unfortunately, he had signed with their French production company and all of the profits to the movie went to their Panamanian production company. So there weren't really any, uh, any profits for the company Lester had his contract with. They were always doing stuff like this. Um, yeah, so Brando was supposed to get um, a big payment of money right right in the initial release of Superman because he, he had um, his percentage was first dollar gross, and they didn't pay him. So he filed a lawsuit. Donner filed a lawsuit, breach of contract lawsuit. Um, and then there were a bunch of other lawsuits from – the various sources uh, from which the Salkinds raised money because sometimes they weren't so truthful about some of the deals. <laughs> so there was a lot of lawsuits going on, which is, by the way, one of the reasons they wanted to make Superman 2 cheaper because the other key thing is when Superman began production, the Salkinds owned it 100%. It was a negative pickup deal with Warner Brothers, meaning the Salkinds would make the movie and Warner's was going to release it only. They, they did not actually produce Superman. But when the movie went over budget and over schedule because of the effects and the scale of the thing, Warner's came in and, and basically invested in Superman the movie. So by the time the film came out, they owned a significant piece of it, which means that the Salkinds percentage was greatly reduced. They needed that money to make the movie, but they resented that they lost their percentages. So they were determined not to have that happen with Superman 2. They wanted to own it 100%. 
so they again they wanted it done as cheaply as possible so they didn't need warner brothers to come in uh, again another one of their reasons for getting rid of dawn yeah they give new meaning to the words creative accounting i would say <laughs> <laughs> what did uh tom mankowitz once said that they used to call that movie uh close encounters of the stall kind <laughs> 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 yeah. mm. yeah, they were they were just quite a bunch of characters so. definitely that for sure uh now brando did receive 15 million i believe from that settlement uh they eventually did have to pay he, him he, something yeah yeah I think what happened is they, and this was fairly common back then, is they came up with some agreement where they bought him out of his rights on the movie, so they paid him a big lump sum, and then he didn't, you know, they didn't have to worry about percentages after that. Yeah. Still, 15 was, was a big big chunk of change, so it was pretty good. Oh, yeah, definitely. Nothing to yeah. scoff at, that's for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> I would happily accept it if someone wanted to give it to you. <laughs> so. I, I, I would as well, for sure. Um, yes. So, uh, anyway, I guess the next thing is, uh, well, of course, uh, Guy Hamilton was directing Cuba. I mean, Lester was directing Cuba at the time they wanted him to, uh, uh, initially. Right. And so yes. uh, they, I guess they waited until he finished Cuba, and then he he came in, and um, uh, I'm trying to get all of my material straight here, too. I've got some notes laid out here. Yeah. Um, but, uh uh, I know Stu- Stuart Baird, the original editor, declined to return, and Dean Hackman declined. So there were a lot of people who were declining when they heard that uh, Donner was fired and uh, Lester was brought on board. Yeah, most of – exactly. Like Donner had created a crew, and and they most of his key team left with him. So, yes, Stuart Baird left. Jeffrey Unsworth, who had photographed Superman the movie, had actually passed away. But he was originally scheduled to be replaced by his camera operator, the the very brilliant Peter McDonald. But when Donner left, McDonald also left. He didn't want to be part of it. Um, later on, it, this wasn't right at the beginning, but John Williams also declined to return. Um, but that was at a later point uh, in the project. Um, yeah, and, and a lot of the ADs and all of that. The, the, basically, the production designer had passed away. Um, so he obviously wasn't going to return. The only key behind the scenes people who stayed were the visual effects people. Um, they were tied in with contracts and Donner told them to stay. He said, don't, you know, don't quit on my account. You guys, you know, you, you got to have jobs and things. Uh, you know, Donner wasn't, you know, he wasn't being ridiculous about it. Um, but the problem, of course, is is that the, those guys did such brilliant work on Superman the movie, and then on Superman two, it was all down and dirty. So if you if you look at the final, uh, the the big special effects sequence of Superman two is the final battle of Metropolis, and if you look, the rear and front projection is often quite sloppy, and that happens when you have to rush through things. Um, and a lot of the um, flying was done with uh, models of people, which, you know, is a solution to a problem, but it just didn't look nearly as good as the stuff they had done in the first film. Um, you know, they, you, the seams kind of show a lot in that sequence. Uh, they, they famously built um, a giant metropolis set on the backward of, <laughs> backward, back lot of Pinewood Studios in England, so they had that wonderful street that they filmed um, that they filmed the final fight on, and that was a pretty spectacular piece of production. The rest of it, though, is done pretty much on the cheap, um, and the, the, you know you can sort of see it in the movie. Uh, there's just not the finesse that there was uh, in Superman the movie. Um, it works well enough for the audience, but it, it isn't nearly as good a piece of work. Um, the other things that they did is, um, the original screen. Oh, that, that this, this is who returned. Tom Mankiewicz was the writer of the shooting draft for Superman, the movie. And, um, Richard Donner had brought him on. They were friends. The, the credited writers on the films are Mario Puzo, who wrote the original draft. And then David, uh, David Newman and Robert Benton and Leslie Newman, who did the intermediate drafts. 
but Tom Mankiewicz came on with, with Richard Donner and really got the script in shape. The, the movie you see on the screen is, is I would say, 80% Tom Mankiewicz's work um, in terms of structuring and, and all of that. So he did not return. Um, he, he wouldn't come back. And there's a famous story that Tom told where um, he left the project when Donner did and one of the heads of Warner Brothers uh, called him and said, hey, they're, they're starting up Superman 2 again. They want you to go over and, and finish writing the script. And one of the things they had to come up with was an ending, which I'll explain in a second. Um, they said, can you go over and work with Richard Lester? And Mankiewicz said, you know, I can't. You know, I went on that project because of Dick Donner. And you guys, you know, Dick Donner's gone. So I, I can't go back. And the guy said, I understand you're very loyal. He says, could you go over to London and just accidentally bump into Richard Lester and, you know, maybe give him some ideas? <laughs> He's like, no, I can't do that either. <laughs> so, um, so they brought back, uh, Robert Benton was already making his own, uh, he was making Kramer versus Kramer actually he was preparing that, uh, in this period. So they brought back David Newman and Leslie Newman to rewrite the script. Um, for a couple of reasons, Mankiewicz, they had shot, what they shot already was from Tom Mankiewicz's draft, but Richard Lester wanted to um, change a few things. He wasn't happy with some of the story progression and some of the scenes. Um, they needed a new opening for the movie because if, if you recall, the famously Superman 1 was originally supposed to end um, in a cliffhanger. What was supposed to happen is... Um, Superman, the missile that he chases at the end of the film, he grabbed it and threw it out into space, and it it flew out into space and cracked open the Phantom Zone, which is where the three villains um, were uh, imprisoned. And what was supposed to happen was, once they were free, they were supposed to, you know, they were supposed to do, as you can see in the Donner cut, yell, we're free, we're free, and then head to Earth. And that was supposed to be the end of Superman 1. That was the cliffhanger. Superman 2 was supposed to pick up with the villains arriving on the moon and destroying uh, the lunar mission and then heading to Earth to take over Earth. But because in the, in the making of Superman 1, they decided to drop that ending because there was they, the famous quote was there wasn't any jeopardy for the principal characters to resolve. So one of the endings of Superman, the, the original ending of the script for Superman 2 was that Superman would turn the world backwards to reverse time. And the reason he did that in the original version of Superman 2 was so that Lois would forget everything that, that had happened so that they could then just resume uh, in, in the ongoing movie series the way it always was, which is Lois didn't know he was Superman and, and all of that. Um, but they thought, you know what, let's stick that on the end of Superman 1 because that's a pretty spectacular ending. And if Superman 1's a bomb, no one's going to hang around to see it for Superman 2. So they put that onto the end of Superman 1. They dropped the cliffhanger, again, feeling that if the movie stunk, it didn't matter if it ended on a cliffhanger. You know, um, So they made it a self-contained movie. Now they needed a new opening. They had to get the villains out of the Phantom Zone. So they came up with a new opening uh, that you see in the current version where they some terrorists are holding the Eiffel Tower hostage with a nuclear bomb and Superman takes the bomb and throws it out into space and it cracks the Phantom Zone. And because they had put the old ending on Superman 1, they needed a new ending. How was, how was Lois going to forget all of this so that they could go on? So the Newmans were brought in to do that work, to do some of the restructuring that um, uh, Lester wanted. Also, they were brought in to reduce the scale of the movie, so to make it cheaper. Um, the original big set piece of, of the movie before the ending was they were going to land, they were going to go around, the, the villains were going to travel around the world conquering all the capital cities of Earth, and it would end with them conquering Washington, D.C. Um, and they were going to chop down the Washington Monument, and then go into the White House, which you do see in, in the current versions of the movie. That was considered too big and too expensive, so it was rewritten as a scene where the villains take over a small town in, 
Idaho or something. I forget where it was some like small farm town, which was filmed on filmed in England. And it, and, you know, I love the English and they're wonderful filmmakers, but they think all Americans like live in towns, small towns with, you know, no uh, paved roads. And, you know, <laughs> like, like if you, if you see the small town, you're like, I have no idea where that's supposed to be. It's, it's the worst small town America you've ever seen, including a little kid with an English accent, which I don't quite understand either. Um, and, and so that was reduced. And then they cut out a scene uh, you know, one of the key moments in the movie is Lois is supposed to suspect early on that Clark is actually Superman, and she um, threatens her own life to get him to reveal himself. In the original Superman 2, she jumps out of Perry White's office window at the Daily Planet, and Superman has to rescue her without revealing himself. They rewrote that to take place um, in... Uh, Niagara Falls um, later in the film. It, it originally opens the movie, that sequence. Um, so they were brought in to do a lot of stuff. And the difference for me is that the Newmans, while very good writers, I mean, you can't, you can't quibble with their ability. They had a very jokey Batman TV series approach to the material. They didn't take it particularly seriously, whereas Donner and Mankiewicz did. So they put a lot of jokey stuff in, um, you know, and, and just, uh, I don't know. It's not my, not, they're responsible for the orange juice stuff, which didn't interest me at all. And um, so they came back and, uh, you know, the project got underway as a very sort of simplified, in my opinion, dumbed down version of Superman 2. Yeah, I, I've always uh, there, there are tone, tonal inconsistencies that you can certainly see, and you can see where the the Newmans came in and ob where their contributions are pretty obvious. Or maybe it's just Richard Lester's style as well, because he yeah. he has a certain sense of humor that he tends to go towards. And I, I I always I didn't see it so much as a kid, but as I've gotten older, when I go back and watch the movie, I, I, the particular stuff that stands out to me is the uh, the scene where the villains are. Uh, using their super breath, shall we say, to uh, blow the city apart. <laughs> yeah. And some of that is really compelling. And then uh, out of nowhere, there'll be these little comedic, something yeah. that looks like it came out of a, a Laurel and Hardy or, or maybe a Buster Keaton uh, short film from yeah. the 30s. The, the guy on the roller skates is always the one that sticks out for me. Some older man in a disco costume <laughs> on roller skates gets blown down the street a guy is on the phone yes. in a phone booth and he like pays no attention as the whole street is blown apart. That is very Richard Lester humor. And in certain films, it would be appreciated. Um, it seemed woefully out of place. It, it really made the thing feel like the stakes weren't very important. Um, you know, and the thing about Donner is Donner really wanted to make a tribute to Superman and a tribute to Americana. And, you know, that film has its tonal um, inconsistencies also, but all of the time, like you never ever feel like the stakes aren't for real. Lester wasn't, I mean, he, he has said, and it's not a secret. He said he's not interested in comic books. He's not interested in that kind of movie. It really was a job for him. And and he just, he just didn't take the material particularly seriously. And, as, you know, this isn't my idea, but as someone said, you know, a slapstick joke uh, inserted, you know, inappropriately is not always the most welcome thing in the world for a movie that you're trying to get audiences to believe in. Um, the other thing about it, and, and if you watch Superman 2, the release version, with a trained eye, you can see this very clearly. There's just a real sloppiness. Um, and again, Lester wasn't a guy to do a lot of takes or worry about details. But Margot Kidder had a lot of personal issues in between Superman 1 and, Super and the resuming of filming for Superman 2. Um, she had some psychological problems and some drug problems. And if you look at the movie, in Superman, she is she has a healthy full face and in superman 2 she's very drawn looking she's very emaciated she almost doesn't look like the same person 
and if you the problem is they intercut footage of of Margot shot during the making of Superman, and then the the new stuff they put a wig on her head because her original hair was in pretty bad shape because of some of her health issues. The wig doesn't look any first of all it doesn't look anything like real hair, and it doesn't look anything like the hair she was wearing in Superman one. So you can literally see scenes where they intercut shots. Um, the, the, the place you can see this the most is in the Daily Planet scenes when the villains uh, invade the room and in the Fortress of Solitude at the end, where literally from shot to shot, she's losing 30 pounds and her hair is completely different. And there's just a level of sloppiness there. Um, I mentioned the, the small American town with no pavement on the streets and the American army is wearing British army berets and, and, you know, they didn't dub some of the actors. So some of the actors are English, you know, extras and they're speaking with English accents. Um, there's just a slapdash quality to a lot of it, um, that, that I think, uh, Donna would not have permitted, and I just don't think Lester was that invested in it. Um, I think Richard Lester is is a brilliant filmmaker, and I think he's made he's not as well remembered these days as some other directors from the '60s. But his impact in the '60s cannot be underestimated. Um, I I'm a giant Richard Lester fan. I just don't think he ever should have gone anywhere near Superman because I just don't think he cared about it very much. Um, and I think the Superman two shows that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And Superman two, uh, he, he kind of gets away with it, you know, because of, of the stuff that was already yeah. there. But by the time he took over, you know, Superman three was pretty much his, his folly, shall we say, uh, he was flying yes. solo on that yes. one, and boy, does it show, uh, you know, which is... Oh, boy. Yeah, well, one of the things about, if you ever have the opportunity to read the original drafts of Superman and Superman 2, one of the things, and this is me speaking as like a screenwriting uh, critique, not as, this is nothing against the human beings who I'm sure were wonderful people. But one of the things about Newman and Benton and then Newman and Newman is they they took a jokey tone towards things. They also were not very good at structure. Like if you read the screenplays for Superman, many of the events that are in Superman the movie are in those screenplays. But they're all like they're scattered a bunch of bunch of stuff that doesn't have much like it's, the plot is very all over the place. There's not much build or focus or momentum and it just kind of meanders. And what Tom Mankiewicz did was he came in and he brought discipline and structure to the narrative, like more than inventing the scenes, Tom structured the movie that you ended up seeing, which, and in filmmaking, the structure is more important or really one of the most important parts of storytelling. If you watch Superman 3, which was written by the Newmans and directed by Lester, it's full of Richard Lester humor, which isn't really appropriate. And then the screenplay meanders all over the place, which is very much the Newmans. So like they, in Superman 3, you see kind of what Superman 1 might have been if Donner and Mankiewicz hadn't come in. Right, exactly. Yeah, you, you can certainly see, like I said, the... Um uh, when when you get to Superman three, you definitely see where his where his yeah. sensibilities lie, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. And importantly, don't lie. Like he just wasn't interested in Superman. He just didn't, you know. So Superman's kind of foolish through most of Superman three. Like he's kind of the butt of jokes rather than the driver of action. And you know that's uh, my feeling is that Lester's totally entitled to that point of view. I just wish he had had that point of view and not made a Superman movie, <laughs> I think that would have been better. You know. <laughs> yeah, um, I know that uh, Lester was quoted at some point. I think I have a quote here. He says, uh, I think Donner was emphasizing a kind of grandiose myth. There was a kind of David Leanish attempt in several sequences in enormous scale. There was a type of epic quality which isn't in my nature. So my work really didn't embrace that. That's not me. That's, that's his yeah. vision of it, and I'm more quirky and play around with slightly more unexpected silliness. So that was his actual quote. Yep. 
and and that's a perfect summation of it. Um, you know, especially in in the early scenes of Superman, you know, Donna was really going at it with an epic eye, and Lester he just wasn't he wasn't interested in the myth, and he wasn't interested in the epic qualities. He was interested to some degree in the comedic potential, um, and he was also, I think, really just interested in. Like he had said, he liked the technical challenges of it, um, but he, he just wasn't invested in it. And Donner was so invested in Superman. And if you watch the two movies side by side, you can really see that. And one of the things that always interested me, even at the time, when Superman 2 came out, most of the, review, the reviews for Superman were very good for the most part. But when Superman 2 came out, there was this weird tone in a lot of the reviews. They were sort of revisionistly said, well, the first movie was kind of lumbering and dull and took too long to get going. And they really liked Superman 2. And the thing you kept hearing all the time was, well, it really got down to the action uh, really quickly, which, you know, is a good thing, I suppose. But I didn't understand why that was um, why that was considered so important, considering, in my opinion, the richness of what Donner gave us in, in the beginning of the first film. But so basically the reviews for Superman 2 in general were better than the ones for Superman the movie. But I remember when I saw it in the theater, from the very first moment, I was like, uh-oh, something's really wrong here. <laughs> like, I never liked it better. And, and now over the years, you've seen the critical thinking change. Now people tend to hold up the first movie and, and the second movie's reputation isn't as good. Um, all I can maintain is I always thought that was the case. <laughs> um, my brother and I always talk about this. One of the things that's missing in Superman 2, Superman 1 had that wonderful score by John Williams. And John Williams did not come back to score Superman 2. Um, and there's, his version of it is he was simply busy with another project and unavailable. Another story that I've heard, though, is he actually came in to screen the final cut with Ilya Salkind and Richard Lester. And Salkind famously said, I got the movie going and I went outside and John Williams came out after the movie and said, I cannot work with that man and then declined the assignment. So apparently Richard Lester and John Williams had some kind of either difference of opinion or argument or something. But anyway, John Williams did not come back to do the score, but what they decided to do, and this is another place where it ends up feeling a little on the cheap side, they hired Ken Thorne, who was a, a good and respected film, uh, film score composer in his own right, and his assignment was to take John Williams' music from the original movie and rework it so that it would be in Superman 2. He was not supposed to write new music. He was just supposed like, to take bits and pieces of John Williams and fit it as best he could. So you do have this weird kind of deja vu feeling. He, he's reusing themes for some of the characters that don't quite track with how they were used in the original movie. But the other part is that John Williams scored the original film with um, with the London Symphony Orchestra, which was a full symphony orchestra. And the, uh, the Superman 2 one was done with about half the number of musicians. So the score has a very thin, uh, cheap sound to it. It just does not sound as lush and wonderful. And I remember sitting in the theater in 1981 when it came out, and I thought, why are they playing the music on a kazoo? That was all I kept thinking about. <laughs> and that, that, that's a little unfair, but, but it's how I felt. It just didn't have the grandiosity of the original. No, I, you know, I was 10 years old when, the, uh, when Superman 2 came out. I saw it in a the theater in June of 81, and I was, I was yep. very uh, – perceptive about things like that as well i i was the kind of kid who paid attention to the names in the credits uh that stuff was important to me from as long as i can remember and i remember sure. seeing sure. the credits for superman 2 and when the, it's the music is composed in you know our music uh by ken thorne or whatever the credit read i, I just remember yeah. my my stomach sinking a little bit uh <laughs> or my heart sinking a little bit yeah when i read that um 
and like I said, I was only 10 at the time, but I just remember this feeling of, oh, no, John Williams didn't do this music. <laughs> just, uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they wanted you to think you yes. did. So I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it literally says something like, uh, music by John Williams, but then like arranged adapted, and whatever, arranged, conducted uh, by Ken, you know, yeah. adapted, right. And so they, they have this credit that if you're not paying attention and you don't know, you think, oh, John Williams yeah. did this music. And, you know, tech, technically that's correct. But he did not bring, he did not score Superman no. 2. And, um, yeah, and, and it's just another place where it just feels cheaper and less, um, it just, the whole project just seems less. What works in the movie and where they got away with it, where they didn't get away with it in Superman 3, is that the basic narrative is still very strong. You know, the idea of of Superman giving up his powers uh, for love, just as the three worst villains in the galaxy show up to cause havoc, it's a great plot. And, and the movie works as well as it does I think because the, the basic narrative was real good. Um, and Christopher Reeve, you know, I, I think if you look at the movie, he's a little more cartoony than he was in Superman the movie. But basically, he's still carrying it with that wonderful interpretation of the character. Mm -hmm. um, Margot's a little less invested in this one. She's She's just wonderful in the first movie. You can sort of see she's standing outside of it a little bit. Um, and even for all of his messing around, Lester manages a, a moment that I think is just wonderful. There's, there's a scene where Lois and, and Superman are in the fortress, and basically they're declaring their love for one another. And there's this wonderful close-up of just their hands clasping. And, and whenever I see that, I think... See, Lester, you can do it when you want to. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just didn't want to. <laughs> no. Yeah, this, this is this is true. Yeah. yeah, there 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 are flashes every now and then. You're exactly right. But um, yeah. But yeah, as a ten year old. And oh, go ahead. Go, no, you, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say, as a ten year old, yeah. it worked pretty well for me. Uh, but but like you said, going back with a trained eye all these years later, not as much as it did back then. So I, I totally can can see everything yeah. that you're saying. Everything that you're saying, I, I definitely can see it now, even though I didn't then. Yeah, no, it. it um, and you know what? It was a big hit. It wasn't as big a hit as the first film, but but it's it's a movie that people really liked at the time. And that people still have very fond memories of, and it's it's not a bad movie, but it's just it just to me it isn't uh, it isn't the patch on the original film, but it's an enjoyable audience picture. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to denigrate it beyond that. I think it's better than any of the movies made since, um, but I just think the first one is such a special movie that uh, it just doesn't quite hold up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, um, I know there's another thing, too, that I was going to mention about Lester and his um, three-camera setup, which caused a little frustration with the actors. Uh, yes. Yeah, Le well, Lester, um, like, again, he was a guy who shot fast. Also, he, he was known as a comedy director. And, and one of the things that you do when you're a comedy director is you don't want to lose any sort of spontaneous moment. So he had gotten in the habit of shooting most of his movies with either two or three cameras. That way, usually there was a camera that was close up on, on the actors, but then there was one that was like wider to catch stuff and occasionally like a random um, extra camera just so he wouldn't miss anything. And, and that's a good way of working when you're trying to capture comedy. Like he, he got a lot of mileage out of that when he did the Beatles movie. The problem is in a special effects picture, you know, in an action picture, that method doesn't always work because, you know, really in an action scene, there really is one good location for the camera in each shot, not three. And, and so the camera work always feels a little less precise when you do that. And a special effects and an action picture I think require precision. I don't know that a comedy does necessarily in that way. 
So the camera works a little loose and not as, um, again, not as specific, not as well composed. The other thing is because Lester shot with three cameras, he could get the scene over with quickly. And sometimes, you know, like the actors would complain because they don't know which camera to place. Um, you know, because an actor in a, in a movie uh, adjusts their performance for, cam- for, for the camera. And when you don't know where to play to, um, you know, your performance can be fuzzier. The other thing is because he used that method, he could kind of get in and out of scenes really quickly. And he didn't always wait um, for the conditions to be right. The, the famous one that uh, Jack O'Halloran, who plays Dawn, is, uh, tends to quote is, if you look at the scene at the Eiffel Tower, Lois comes and talks to a French policeman and then sneaks past the policeman and climbs up into the Eiffel Tower. The whole sequence with the policeman was shot and it's raining. Now, you don't see rain on film unless it's backlit, but if you look at the, pol- the windshields and at the policeman's uniform, as he's talking to her, he's getting sprinkled with water. And, you know, if Donner had shot it, they would have waited for the rain to stop and they would have done more precise lighting, which you can do if you're only shooting from one angle. When you shoot with three different cameras, you have to have a much flatter lighting style so that all of the all of the cameras pick up the light. So when you see this scene, you know, it's not really clear where where the focus of the scene is. There's rain everywhere. And it's just it's just sloppy, is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. That's a that's a great point. And again, these are things that you don't pick yeah. up on. At least I didn't when I was ten years old, and and I do now, obviously. So yeah, the, the, yeah. the flaws are are a lot more noticeable. Um, yeah. Well, I'm I'm trying to think if there's anything else I was gonna that I wanted you to talk about. Um, well, well, the, the famous thing to talk about is that 25 years later, Donner was given the chance to put his version of Superman 2 together. They released uh, uh, something that's called Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. And yeah, and what they did to... The funny part is that for years, it was said that all of the Brando footage, all of the stuff, because I, I should backtrack a little bit, um, when Lester put the movie together, he put it together with stuff Lester had already, sh- I mean, uh, Donner had already shot anything with Gene Hackman in it, um, Donner shot. Um, a lot of the Fortress stuff uh, in the beginning, Donner shot. He didn't do so much of the end stuff. Um, and they had reshot a bunch of scenes uh, in part because Lester wanted them to go differently. And there's some argument that he reshot some of it just so he was guaranteed a director's credit because you have to shoot more than 50% of the movie to get a director's credit. Um, But anyway, so all of this footage, the the final movie of Superman two that was released in theaters has probably about 30% of the footage that Richard Donner shot and the rest of it is Richard Lester. So whatever happened to the rest of it has always been the question. And for years it was said that, Oh, it was lost somewhere, which didn't quite make sense. But I remember in the early 2000s, I was lucky enough to visit Pinewood Studios, and I was talking to the the representative who was showing me around, and I said to her something about, oh, they made Superman here. And I said, oh, all that lost footage for Superman 2. She goes, it's not lost. She pointed over to a building. She goes, it's over there. <laughs> and 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 what, what had happened was the Salt Times didn't pay the uh, storage fees. So basically, Pinewood had it there for years and years and years, and nobody ever came to get it, but they weren't going to release it till they got paid. Um, so anyway, when, when Brian Singer was putting together Superman Returns, one of the things that they, they made a deal with Brando's estate to reuse some of his uh, footage from Superman the movie in, in Superman Returns. Well, Warner's ended up making made a deal with the estate where they basically paid off his performance in Superman two as well. Brando had passed away by this time, but the idea was let's just buy out his rights to all of that um, footage that the Saul kinds had cut out. And once they got that footage, then the idea took place that why don't we have Richard Donner come back in and assemble as best he can, the version of Superman two that he shot. 
Um, and that became Superman II, the Richard Donner cut, which is not a theatrical thing. It's only available on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, it's a fascinating piece because you see what they had in mind for Brando, uh, how he was going to play out in Superman II. Um, they, re- they put the structure back the way that Donner and Mankiewicz originally had it, with one big key difference in it being that in Richard Donner's Superman II, Superman sleeps with Lois Lane and then decides to give up his powers. In, in Richard Lester's Superman 2, Superman gives up his powers, so it's Clark Kent who sleeps with Lois Lane. And that may seem like who cares about that difference, but I think the one carries the more mythological element and the one is a little more on the ordinary side. Um, the sacrifice, I feel, is bigger in Donna's movie, where Superman gives up his powers to be with Lois rather than, um, you know, he does it after the fact because he knows he can't, he's going to just to choose. In Superman 2, the choice is already made before anything happens. To me, that's a big change. Um, and, you know, in and in Superman, the release cut of Superman 2, they never show you how he gets his powers back. He goes up to the Fortress of Solitude and finds the green crystal. And then you don't know, like, then later on he shows up as Superman. What they show you in the Donner cut is that the crystal brings Jarrell back and Jarrell puts all of his energy back into Superman. And that's how he regains his powers, which I don't know, to me is a pretty big plot point to leave out of a movie, <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, it's and the Donner cut. You know, the big problem they had with it was they couldn't shoot any new footage because Chris and Margot were well. Chris was gone by then. Margot wasn't, um, so they had to make do with what they had, which means they couldn't shoot a new ending. So basically, they they took the intellectual position that they would just present you the script as originally written. So they basically put on the turning back the world thing again which is how Superman 2 was originally supposed to end. But a lot of people watching the Donner cut on home video didn't know all this backstory. So like, well, they just reused the same ending. They didn't, they didn't get that it was supposed to be an archival piece, you know? Um, it, it's interesting. I think they used the ending better the way they did. Um, and I did ask both Donner and Mankiewicz at different points. So what was the ending you guys were going to put on the movie? And both of them said the same thing. Like, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't. They, they couldn't remember what they were gonna do. <laughs> so. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, I did want to talk about two other things. One is the release of the film, um, which uh, yeah. it had a very interesting release pattern. So, if we want to get into that, we uh, kind of teased about that at the beginning of the. Well, in the in back then, which would have been seventy nine, eighty, eighty one. The traditional release pattern for big movies was you would re- you would release in the United States, and then and you would do that either at Christmas or in the summer, which were the two big seasons, and then the movies would go across the world, different territories. Like famously, Star Wars opened here in May of 1977. I think it opened in England in in the winter. Close Encounters opened here at Thanksgiving, and it opened in England in uh, April of that year, of the next year, I mean. So, like, that was kind of how it went. The Salkinds, um, you know, when they were finishing it up, Superman 2 was originally supposed to be released at Christmas of 79. Well, they didn't even start the reshoots until, I believe it was, like, April or May of 79. So there was no way it was going to get done. So it was basically finished by 1980 instead of 79. And the, it was finished too late for the American Christmas release. So Warner's basically said, we're going to hold it until summer. And the Salkinds, that, they, their feeling was, we want our money now. We don't want to wait. So instead of opening it in the United States in the summer and then gradually opening it around the rest of the world, they reversed it. It opened in Europe at the end of 1980, Christmas of 1980, it, and, and it opened in different markets, um, and it opened here. It, wasn't, it didn't open in the U.S. last, but the U.S. was like the last of the really big territories to get it in June of 81. So they reversed that 
pattern, which had never been done before. Now that is the pattern. A lot of these big movies open overseas before they open in the U.S. But but at that time, that was a big sort of shocking kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it is an interesting release pattern for sure, and it, and it did, like you said, kind of it kind of set a precedent for for the way things are are done today. Uh, another thing that we didn't mention yeah. uh, about the film is uh, it's had a huge number of product placements in the film. <laughs> this is one of the one oh, of the one of the, yeah. the the yeah. I I can I think it's the first yeah. time I ever noticed. And like I said, I was only ten when it came out, but I I, I can remember. Uh, there's the Coca-Cola sign where he gets Superman yeah. goes flying into the Coca-Cola, and there's Marlboro, and I don't know what all. That, I think there's about 34 uh-huh. products, I think, uh, all together. Uh, there's uh, KFC. They make a big deal of KFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's one of the things that gets blown down in the battle. You're right. Coca-Cola is the, the famous one because General Zod gets thrown through it. I think the high watermark for obvious product placement was uh, in 1979, if you ever see the James Bond movie, Moonraker. Um, there is not a scene in that movie that isn't promoting some product or another. Um, and then I think the Salkine saw that, and they're like, yep, give me some of that promotion money, because um, that was a way filmmakers could raise money oh, yeah. for the budget, you know, put a, put a cigarette truck in it. Oh, there's... Um, the play of Vita is on all the buses. <laughs> I forgot about that. Superman That's true. So, yeah, so there's, there's a big for that. All of that was paid for, and that helped them get money for the budget. Um, I would say Moonraker is still the jaw-dropping one because the amount of product place in that movie is just stunning. But Superman 2 runs a pretty good close second as, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And I did not see Moonraker in a theater. Now, I, I caught it, you know, obviously on on home video. Uh, my dad, sadly, was not a James Bond yeah. fan, and so we didn't go see James Bond films. <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan, and so there yeah. were a lot of those that I didn't get to catch until uh, later on, I started seeing them in theaters when I was in my mid-teens. But uh, Moonraker, I, I didn't see in a theater, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that was – but uh, the one thing I do want to talk about uh, before we wrap up here uh, are the various uh, different versions uh, outside of the Richard Donner cut. There are several – there's a broadcast television yeah. version. There's a European version. Uh, if we want to talk a little bit about this, uh, because they did something similar, of course, for Superman the movie when they uh, released it to ABC television. They made it a two-night event and basically took everything but the kitchen sink yeah. that they could find and put it back into the movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, th- that was – that was yes. That, they, there was a thing in the late 70s and early 80s where they would make some of these big blockbuster movies into one- or two-night events. Um, and And – Sometimes they would do that by adding in footage uh, that had been shot but cut out for theatrical, and sometimes they would do it by uh, Universal shot entire new sequences for some of their blockbuster movies like Earthquake and Airport 77 and Two Minute Warning, um, and and they would that way they could pad them out when they were shown on television. When Superman was bought by ABC, and this is where the money thing gets into it. Warner Brothers owned the theatrical distribution in the United States on Superman. It did not own the television rights or the home video rights. Well, home video didn't exist at that time. But um, So when the Salkinds made the deal with ABC to show Superman the movie, they got more money. They made it a two-night event. And what they basically did was went back and used the very first assembly edit, rough cut, and they put every piece of footage back in. The thing ran two nights, and Warner's put it out on DVD a few years ago. And it's a fascinating archival document. I don't know that it's the best version of the movie because the pacing is pretty pretty all over the place, as is the case in most rough cuts. So for Superman 2, they did the same thing, but they didn't make it a two-night event. By then, the two-night event thing was kind of dying out. This would have been around 83 or so. So what they did is they put in footage and made it a one-night, like, three-hour event um, um, showing. And they put in a lot of the Richard Donner footage that had been cut out. And that's where a lot of the fans – because, you know, back then, 
sort of the behind the scenes of a lot of these things were not as well known as they are now. You didn't have the internet and stuff. And when people started to see some of the shots, they were like, wait a minute, there's more going on here. And if you had written, if you had read the making of Superman, the movie paperback by David Petro, he talked about a lot of scenes that never showed up in Superman two. And suddenly we were getting a chance to see them. Now it was all done a little sloppy because they were, you know, they were putting in unfinished stuff. There's some, um, you can hear a lot of the ambient set noise. You can hear like a light stand or something fall over on the Fortress of Solitude, um, all sorts of things like that. But but the footage looks great because it was shot by Jeffrey Unsworth. It made people excited. So that was the ABC version. And I think that ran twice. I could be wrong about that. Um, but then they... Um, then what happened is when the internet came in, a lot of fans, because there's a European TV version that has even more footage, I believe, like not tons more, but it ran longer. So a bunch of fans started collecting prints of all of these different versions. And um, there was, I don't know who the guy's real name is, but a guy named Cellutron, <laughs> or that was his uh, nom de internet. He put out a cut that basically tried to reassemble what the Donna version would have looked like using the available footage. Now, nobody had the Brando footage. That was, that stuff had not been, still had not been seen because they, they didn't have the rights to use it. So that was still the big missing piece. But the Cellutron one went around on the internet for quite a while. And there is some thought that that's what motivated the Warners to do an official Richard Donner cut. Cause they're like, well, if the fans are putting out these unofficial cuts, let's put out the one uh, that why they're doing this. They want to see that version. Let's do it. And by then, um, they had acquired all the rights to the movies from the Salkine. So Warners was in charge of putting out the, the Donner cut, right. basically. Yeah. I think the, yeah. the ABC television version clocked in at, um, I believe, two hours and 26 minutes as the original theatrical was two hours and eight minutes. I think so. Uh, yes, that that yeah, that's that, that's right. A lot of what went back in is a little bits and pieces of stuff, but most famously, one of the things that doesn't sit so well in the theatrical version, um, and actually in the Donner cut as well, is that Superman basically kills mm-hmm. the villains, you know, and Superman's not supposed to kill people, but you know they they try to attack him, but they all end up falling into this seemingly into this. Uh, bottomless pit or something and what you see in the in the television version is as superman is uh the movie's over and he's leading out lex luther to be arrested which is another thing in the theatrical cut they just leave less uh lex luther in the fortress of solitude and you never learn what happened to him um you know you know whether he froze to death <laughs> or he stole all superman stuff um you know, but the original ending was superman led him out and gave them to, now, I don't think this is a real thing, but the Arctic police force, who, like, <laughs> then takes them off to jail. Um, and, and in the background, you see the three criminals being let out. And now they're human because they lost their powers. So they get arrested and driven away, too. So in the original version, Superman doesn't kill people, uh, which is nice. Um, I do not know why the decision was made not to include that in um, the Donner cut of Superman 2, because unfortunately in that one, he still kills the villain. Very interesting. 